You're listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is former Rear Admiral Paul Becker. Paul's a leadership expert, a motivational speaker, and he has led incredible teams in crisis combat management and now is in this private sector sharing what he learned about paying the price of leadership with corporations all over the world. So stay tuned. You are going to love hearing what retired Admiral Becker has to say about paying the price of leadership. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tremendous Leadership Podcast, Leaders on Leadership, where we pull back the curtain on leadership and we talk with top leadership experts from all over the world on what it took them to pay the price of leadership. And I am tremendously excited today because our guest is a success expert, motivational speaker. His name is retired Rear Admiral Paul Becker, and he is the formal Naval Intelligence Rear Admiral who built and led large, diverse teams in peace, in crisis, and in combat. He is a stage four bone cancer survivor, and he started a service-disabled veteran-owned small business consultancy in 2016 called the Becker T3 Group, and we're going to hear more about that when we wrap this up. And T3, I love this, stands for Teamwork, Tone, and Tenacity. These are all tenets of leadership learned in uniform that improve performance, productivity, and profit in the private sector. Admiral Becker, welcome to the Tremendous Leadership Podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Tracy. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. And sir, do you mind if I call you Paul throughout the remainder of this? Is that acceptable? Paul is better. I'm more comfortable there now. Oh, thank you so much. Well, just for our listeners out there, because everybody loves to hear the story about how tremendous people get connected. I met Paul on the C-Suite Network, and he was in the group. We do these Friday kind of get-togethers. I've only been a member about six weeks. How long have you been a member, Paul? A little over a year now. Okay, fantastic. And just saw his website, saw his credentials, and thought, you guys know my prior history, and he can tell you where he went to school. And we were just chatting about the Navy Air Force game a little bit before we came online. But just exciting. You guys know, our listeners, how the military affected my leadership development. And so I love talking with formal leadership experts, especially a retired former rear admiral with the experiences that he has. So thank you again, Paul. My pleasure. Excellent. So, Paul, I had sent you a speech that my father gave called The Price of Leadership. And in it, my father uh, was quite passionate about leadership but he was very pragmatic about it. And he talked about, you know, there's a certain price that you're going to have to pay if you really consider yourself a true authentic leadership. And I know somebody in your role being in crisis and combat, you understand leadership isn't always easy. So one of the things that he talked about, the first price was loneliness. And would you unpack for us um, maybe some times in your career where you felt loneliness as a leader and what that means to you? as a leader. So maybe um, if some of our listeners going through a season of that might get some insights. Thanks. Yes. I like your dad's paradigm. I've not put those four words together Mm -hmm. as a framework for leadership, but they're worth talking about. So this is a learning experience for me and all leaders are learners and listeners. So there'll be experiential learning and listening along the way. There's loneliness and weariness and abandonment and vision. When it comes to loneliness, Tracy, there's a physical loneliness Mm -hmm. that I've experienced as a leader, and there's an emotional detachment uh, that's sometimes necessary as a leader as well. We'll start with the physical loneliness. I'm a gregarious person by nature, right? I like to network. I like to be with others. And 
I tried whenever possible not to become physically isolated from the teams that I worked with. So I never accepted that leaders are lonely because they have an office by themselves and they have to make decisions rubbing their chin with no one else around. I was more of a collaborative spirit. So I liked uh, talking with people. I liked absorbing their ideas and getting a chance for them to be included. I found it improved the quality of our thought, quality of our outcomes. If it wasn't possible to get together closer to me, the Yiddish word uh, I'm going to use here is called spilchas, which means ants in your pants and you feel like you have to walk around and do something all the time, you know, just uh, a little edgy. And I've always felt like that, you know, I, as a school age child, as a military leader, I liked walking around, seeing what was happening, listening to what others were doing, sharing with what I was doing that they may not get to hear otherwise, and just having the visual interaction, sometimes the physical interaction, that eliminated an area of loneliness. And I never completely bought into the small group theory that I find a lot of more senior officers accept that this uh, information needs to be closely held. Mm. I was of the opposite opinion. I like the large group theory. Now, not everything should be widely disseminated as it's evolving and it's half-baked. But when the decision-making process started moving in earnest, I liked involving all facets of the organization so there was a transparency and understanding. And even if you were in division S, T, U, and V, you understood, at least you heard, what divisions B, C, D, and F were doing at the same time. So that's an area of physical loneliness. I think leaders should expect that work will require them to be physically separated from their families for longer periods of time. In the military in particular, there are a lot of choice assignments that sometimes you have to go unaccompanied, right? Geographic bachelors, as we call them. It may be six months. It may be two and a half years, as I once had in the Middle East, right? Before I came home for good. And how do you make the most of your time? If you're physically separated from your family, you have uh, people at work. I never bought into the theory of, well, leaders dine alone, Right. And I liked getting out for the social activity of an organization. It didn't mean I had to do the same thing as the petty officers or the lieutenants at the activity. And it didn't mean I had to be there right till the ending hours. Okay. But just to be there as a member of the team, right? By title, may have been leader of the team, but your dad's four corners, right? Of, of, loneliness, weariness, abandonment, and vision, it proves that leadership is a process, mm -hmm. right? It's not a title. I may have been the commanding officer, or I may have been the N2 or J2, the Intel officer, but that's not leadership. You know, that's just a title. Mm. Leadership is the process of combining those four factors and others into influencing others and achieving a positive outcome. And I found that better done when you had more physical interaction and you were less physically lonely than the others. So that's probably enough on the physical aspect of loneliness. But I mentioned there's an emotional, professional loneliness that, that comes with a leader. I talked about my style as one of inclusivity. Mm -hmm. I like to listen, learn, 
uh, collaborate, communicate frequently, but not everyone at the table picked their decision and we couldn't execute seven things at once. That's a leader's job on occasion, you know, to pick the one solution, but I like doing it with others. Even if not everyone agreed, I wanted them to understand the process, the inputs, and, and the decision along the way. Sometimes you don't have to be in command or a senior officer at all to make a decision of leadership and influence. It could be a junior non-commissioned officer. It could be a junior commissioned officer where you take a courageous stand if you think something is immoral, illegal, unethical. I can remember the fairly junior officer, our squadron, I was in a Navy uh, squadron, we were preparing to conduct a strike mission against a target ashore and the latest imagery arrived and the air crews and our ship was really ready to enter combat. Mm -hmm. And I saw some things that were just wrong in that latest satellite image. And I felt duty bound to go to my chain of command and say, I think there'll be unacceptable collateral damage if we strike this target. Yeah, Becker, but we've been waiting, you know, for this mission for several weeks, the opportunities here. And there was a long discussion that ensued. And ultimately, the strike group commander decided we're not going to strike. There's too much downside here. So that I felt emotionally lonely. Yeah, I didn't feel like I was a leader, right. uh, but I tried to influence a process, right? The very definition of leadership. And frankly, uh, some of my shipmates wouldn't talk to me for a while. Like, mm -hmm. hey, he screwed up our opportunity to go into combat. Uh, you know how valued that is in our profession of arms. Now, there was plenty more combat to come. Right. Right. It just, that instance ju just wasn't right. Mm -hmm. And then how to bide your time if you're physically or emotionally distanced and, and lonely. I found refuge in books. I don't consider myself a geek or an academic by trade, but when you are by yourself and lonely, I find books are great friends that uh, not only can you learn about, and, and you can go back deep, right? You can read Marcus Aurelius and what he thought, you know, about life as a Stoic, you know, during the Roman Empire. Or you could go more contemporary to General Colin Powell, right, who has a unique perspective from a lot of senior positions. Mm -hmm. You could pick a contemporary non-military mm -hmm. type person, right? I think about Peter Drucker or Robert Maxwell or Sheryl Sandberg, right, as, as recommended reading. They're all here in my office. They're all mm -hmm. earmarked. I reference them frequently. And then to help augment that, I try and become less emotionally, less physically lonely by keeping current with pop culture, which connects me to a new generation ah, of nice. military service members. Uh -huh. For example, uh, during my two and a half years in Bahrain, I was the intel officer for naval forces of our central command. This is during uh, the peak of Iraqi freedom's uh, surge and Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan still underway. Mm -hmm. Iran was up to malign activity. There was piracy and maritime terrorism. So it was a full plate. But I still found time to see movies like uh, Superbad or every time I'd get a TDY a trip to read a Harry Potter book uh -huh. or you know, something like that to keep current uh -huh. with what I knew was a new generation 
of service members joining. So I had something to talk about on the margins besides analyzing the threat every day. I love so, it. Okay, plenty of thoughts on loneliness there. It is. And for our listeners out there, you know, I hadn't ever thought, and I'm not sure if I had anybody prior military on this before, but you talked about the unaccompanied tours. And for our listeners out there, you know, I know it's tough when you travel. Maybe it's tough that you're not traveling right now because everybody's been home. We have like the opposite. That's why I joined the Navy. Yeah, we would go away. A short tour was six months. A long tour was one to three years. I can remember getting called up for Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. You went. You just said goodbye. I was married at the time. And then we went away for nine months and came back together at the end. So that's interesting. But I also love that you talked about doing the right thing. I think that's what, and I think I'm so glad you brought that up because I think even in the military, and the military is a phenomenal institution, but it's all about the people. And you're always going to have people that get focused on what they think is the right thing. And you're going to have to really sometimes stand up. And that takes a great deal of courage. And I really appreciate you sharing that because. I think there's this assumption with leadership that if you do the right thing, if you bring out the obvious, if you call out the elephant in the room, or if you just go, wait, wait, is, are people really, do we not all see this? And you get the whole group think and conformity think and false consensus and strong, I mean, all the weird things that our minds start doing. I mean, I think that's really brilliant that I appreciate you saying that because I think we just assume when we call something out that everybody's going to go, well, yes. And that's not often the case. And there have been people that have lost their careers because they've stood on principle. So thank you for sharing the conviction because sometimes conviction makes you lonely, but I'd rather be lonely with my own conviction than lonely knowing that I let something go on. That's the worst. And not said something that I knew. I mean, that kills your soul. Yeah. A broad stroke about all those points that we just discussed, Tracy is that leaders have to generate their own morale, mm-hmm. right? No one gives it to you. Right. Uh, but at the same time, leader, you need to be mindful that others may be going through the same scenario. Right. So when you ask how you're doing, you need to mean it and you need to get to the bottom line. And you need to have a trusted confidant and friend, even if you are senior in rank, but it's okay to have a special relationship you know, with a, a colleague, a, mm-hmm. a protege mentor relationship. And it's okay to be reverse mentored right? mm-hmm. by someone junior to you. Could be your deputy, just could be someone who you've served with in the past that'll knock on your door or just talk to you during your daily exercises and say, you know what everyone's thinking? I don't think you're clued in on. That will help bring you to others and others to you. Yes. Uh, Exercise that option as well. And Paul, did you have, because those are the people in the military, they know we've talked about, you know, in the military, there's fraternization. So there's more of a separation. Not that we still don't collaborate, but like you said, you're there as a member, but you don't do the things that other people do. You know what I'm saying? There's reasons for it. Um, Did you have anybody, I know your colleagues or your senior level enlisted that could pour into you. Did you reach out outside your career field to have people that you would use this as a sounding board or if you were in a season of loneliness to get counsel? Absolutely. Probably more so than in the community. Good. I had sources in both and we're well off of loneliness at this point, but it's a good conversation with your permission. I'll keep going. Yes, please. Not long after that tour, another tour as a Navy captain, at this point I commanded the Joint Intelligence Center for Central Command in Tampa. It was a large organization with a lot of missions about 800 people, and we were engaged throughout the Central Command area of responsibility. 
with officer enlisted, active reserve, civilians. And one of my mentors told me that, Paul, the more senior you become, the more mentoring you're going to need. Wow. And at first I thought he must have misspoke. He's got this backwards because here I am, you know, I've, I've got commander in my title, right? I've got a parking space for the first time ever. People salute you. Yeah. <laughs> but then it dawned on me, right? I had not commanded before. Mm. And there was much I had to learn. So I sought mentoring, not just from within my community, but external. And, and I maintain that practice. But come to think of it, up to that point, I probably didn't go deep you know, for that and or wide for that type of mentoring Mm -hmm. until someone just shared a a simple thought, right? There's a lot of value in simplicity, you know, and elegance there. And it made all the difference, you know, that I reached out more instead of less. I love it. And you were, okay, so I love that. The more senior you become, the more mentorship you'll need. So that kind of takes us what you're sharing the burden of leadership, because it is a burden. It's joyful, but it's tough. If it were easy, everybody would do it, okay? So we t- my father talked about weariness. And how do you stay? You talked about books. That's beautiful. You talked about mentorship. But anything else you want to talk about for weariness, how you stay replenished? Because, you know, in the military, if the leader isn't on their game, there's a lot of things that can happen as a result of that. So can you share with us how you combat and handle weariness? Sure. A couple facets like loneliness. Uh, I'll start with the physical, but there's also a professional and Mm -hmm. emotional weariness that comes along with command as well. There's a famous citation. I've heard it attributed to both Patton and football coach Lombardi that fatigues makes cowards of us all, right? And leadership is an around the clock activity. You may get calls, you know, around the clock, You may be working extra late to make sure a series of evaluations or a submission of a key product looks just right because it represents your command. Uh, And even though you may not be the principal analyst for a product as an Intel professional, you're the senior analyst. Mm -hmm. It has your command's name on it, Mm -hmm. right? So there's an administrative burden that comes with it. And you'll be working more hours. I think something's way off if you're working less hours while you're in a position of significant leadership. Right. I like the phrase, if you want to get something done, give it to someone who's busy. Mm -hmm. They know how to do things and, and turn it out. And it takes a physical energy. And I always played sports growing up. never gave that up until I was diagnosed with bone marrow cancer, which you brought up. And I'll talk about uh, that in weariness as well. But you need to have stamina to succeed as a leader. And you never know when you come to work one day, in a profession of arms in particular, how long is that day going to be? Right. How many people came to work at the Pentagon on 9-11, 2001, Mm -hmm. and didn't know they may be going for 36 hours? Probably every single one. And some of them performed better. And uh, we're coming up on the 19th anniversary, uh, the 20th anniversary of the attack on the USS Cole Mm -hmm. in Yemen. This is Al-Qaeda's first attack against a dedicated U.S. military facility afloat, a military target afloat. And 
in a damage control evolution or the Cobar Towers, you know, maybe some decade uh, before that. Right. You don't know how long you're going to be out there. Mm -hmm. And there's a physical wherewithal that others will depend upon a leader to be there. You can't phone it in that you're tired and my deputy has it at this point. I'll be back after my (laughs) eight hours of sleep in a crisis. There's a reason for eight hours sleep. Right. We're as a profession of arms, you want to be well rested and alert. Air Force is keen on crew rest for Mm -hmm. for good reason. But there are crisis situations where you'll need that kind of stamina. And I've had many over the years. Now, you can share the load. That's for sure. There's a chain of command. I've seen some commanders, CCs, as the Air Force calls them, Mm -hmm. right, give a, a lot. And some of them give a little bit of responsibility to their deputies. Mm -hmm. I always wanted a lot of performance out of my deputies. And I always worked for commanders that wanted a lot of performance out of me. Hopefully I I met the target. But in order to get a lot of performance, I found you have to give them a lot of authority. So you have to not only give up the work, but give up the authority to direct some of these activities. Yep. So you're actually accepting some risk, leader, Mm -hmm. but it needs to be measured risk. Right. And if something goes wrong, you need to buy that risk. Right. In case something goes wrong. Right. You may delegate the activity, but you own the responsibility. And there's a weariness that comes uh, from that, from both keeping your head on a swivel and then being able to follow up, if necessary, in other places as well. Mm Mm-hmm. You need to watch out for your fatigue. Mm -hmm. Back to protege-mentor relationship or another colleague, either in your specialty or without. If someone comes up to you and says, you're looking really tired. Do you realize you've misbuttoned your shirt today? Right? There are small tells. You're consistently misspelling some of your emails. Have you stopped spell checking? Right? You know, your attitude's a little snappy. Mm -hmm. You're not normally like that. So... You may see it yourself, you may not see it yourself. Mm-hmm. But to avoid weariness, well, to avoid the signs that you're missing weariness, it's good to have another partner there. Weariness can go to a whole nother level. And some of it may be medically induced, uh, as was the case for me. At the time in 2014, I was the Joint Chiefs of Staff J2, Director for Intelligence. I just come from Hawaii, much happier place than the Pentagon for the record where I was the J2 or director for intelligence of the Pacific Command, as it was called back then. And I had just run the Honolulu Marathon before transferring to DC. So I I had the fitness part to avoid the weariness just fine, but I had a knee pain that just wouldn't go away. Upon further examination with an MRI, a tumor was found. The tumor was biopsied. And I was told I had something I had never heard of before, multiple myeloma or bone marrow cancer. On a scale, I asked, how are these things scaled? And the doctor glumly said, it's, this is at uh, stage four. And being my first exposure to cancer, I never even had a family or a close friend uh, involved. Mm-hmm. Stage four, well, got six stages to go until we get to stage 10, because in America, everything's based on 10, right? David Letterman's list, people's <laughs> looks, right? Everything's 10. No, uh, there's no stage five. And that got my attention, right, very quickly. So I spent most of 2015 in 
the ever-increasingly famous Walter Reed mm -hmm. National Military Medical Center, formerly called Bethesda Naval Hospital. And uh, fortunately, my leg was saved, but I had to go through a lot of high-dose chemotherapy. I went through a stem cell transplant, which is a rather sporty procedure. And to this day, I remain on low-dose maintenance chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. This is my way ahead, considering the alternatives. And I was on the ropes on a couple of occasions. I'm very happy with this outcome. So there's a weariness that comes with worry, right? There's a weariness that yeah. comes with factors beyond your control of taking care of your body. But what helped me get through it, we'll talk more about teamwork, tone, tenacity in a little bit. Mm -hmm. That was a framework. But there was also faith and family and fitness, right? You put those together and that's a recipe to use against weariness. Yes, it is. That's a recipe to use against loneliness as well. So I'm glad we bundled those two together up front, Tracy, because there's a lot of similarities there. Right. And you're going to encounter them. But like you said, there is a potent cocktail that we can do to do. And you know, as well as I do, a lot of contingency planning, a lot of preventative maintenance, and making sure your faith is solid, your family, and do everything you can fitness-wise. Wow. That's unbelievable, Paul. And how are you now strength-wise? Does the low dosage, does that still impact you? Do you feel like you're kind of, you know, back in your fighting shape or where are you at right now? I don't think I'll ever be back to that level of fighting shape because I can't run anymore. I okay. have an eight-inch titanium rod as a big part of my right femur okay. uh, nowadays. So running's out. So I've adopted swimming and other exercises, mm -hmm. but I'm healthy. I'm in a steady, deep remission. Uh, Beautiful. And sky's the limit. I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that, Paul. All right. The next thing we talked about, loneliness, weariness. My dad then talked about abandonment. And typically, abandonment has this negative connotation, like you're walking away from something. But his version of abandonment was, we need to give up what we like and want to think about in favor of what we ought and need to think about. So I really look at this as kind of a hyper-focus. And as a commander, you can't command if you're scattered and barking out different orders to everybody. So can you explain to me what abandonment means to you and how you've been in incredible command positions? How did you stay on point, stay on mission point and move forward? Yes, I never use the phrase abandonment as part of my leadership lexicon either. Right, right. <laughs> to prepare to, to speak with you, you know, I started researching it a little uh -huh. bit. So uh, your dad's on to something there. And others have written about it uh, eloquently as well. So I have some, some background. So at first I thought it may be, well, none of my, the leaders that I worked for and admired ever abandoned me. I, I would hope people didn't say I abandoned them. But in this aspect, there's no physical you know, component like there is for loneliness and weariness. I would phrase it this way. An element of leadership is managing loss. Now let me be more specific, mm -hmm. right? It's freeing up resources. Yes, yes. It's cutting loose something that is no longer of yep. value. It's trying things and when they fail, being comfortable enough to say, oh, that was a real mess. We're not going to do that again, <laughs> right? You know, that's abandoning an right. idea, Right. It may be cutting loose a person to the degree that you can from your organization, right? Over the years, 
I've had way more failures than successes. And the failures are funnier, too. They make for better story. right, they you know, there are some stories. Right. Yeah. There are some epic fails. Right? <laughs> the epic successes were few and far between and rather boring, right? And as an Intel professional, we typically don't talk of them publicly. But success teaches nothing. Only failure teaches is a famous citation of former naval officer, father of the nuclear Navy, Admiral Rickover. Mm -hmm. Success teaches nothing. Only failure teaches. I think Jedi Master Yoda, you know, has a <laughs> variant of the same, right? My point is not to compare Admiral Rick over and Yoda. But it's a theme that crosses galaxies, right. you know, in that regard. Absolutely. Yeah, and I love that. And, you know, you talk about it, it's pruning. And, you know, before we experience growth, we're going to have to go back and look at getting rid of what no longer serves us. And things change. The end is still here. But you may have to adapt, you know, it's the old fight or flight, but we may need to adapt things that what worked in a season before, you know, you got new orders at any time different. So you have to be able to pivot and let go of the sacred cows so you can, you know, embrace the new future, which is always unpacking itself and revealing itself. It's a really important unstated task for leaders. Uh, they must prioritize. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what needs to be done for the organization. Right. I enter any position with a long list of things I like to do. I'm probably hired in a lot of places because I'm good doing what I like to do. Uh -huh. But I've also shown that I can expand that. And I've probably been hired because people think, well, he could probably do this too. I may have gotten there and found out I don't like it. Right. But I do need to realize it needs to be done. Right. You know, back to the Middle East, for example, I, the N2 in Bahrain. So we're looking at Iraqi, the maritime terrorism component, malign activities of Iran, you know, in three dimensions, in the air, surface, and on the sea, under the sea as well, and cyber make it five-dimensional threat there. We're supporting Operation Enduring Freedom. And then you got this piracy problem off of the Horn of Africa. Come on, we're in real combat up here in this portion of our theater. I don't like to do piracy, right? The return on investment is so small as a war fighting organization, but it was what the international community and our own national command authority demanded of us. So as much as I didn't like it, I probably spent at the peak of piracy uh, timeframe of literally about 15 years ago right now off of the Horn of Africa, probably half of my day uh, devoted to piracy issues uh, compared to what I would have rather spent on it, 10% of the time, but that's not what needed mm. to be done. Mm -hmm. And that's a trade-off. You know, everyone abandons something all the time, mm -hmm. usually at midnight, right? Yesterday is behind you. Yes. Tomorrow is ahead of you. Right. We're abandoning yesterday on a 24-hour cycle, at least administratively, right? But whether you use a sports analogy or a military analogy or a corporate analogy, there are some things you just can't affect any mm -hmm. longer. Mm -hmm. And every situation's different, so the goal is not to quickly jettison everything or hold on to it for a certain amount of time. It depends. But you need to be looking forward, and that's abandoning, you know, what's behind you mm -hmm. in that regard. I love it. I love it. Love uh, that. Another, another thought on, on uh, abandonment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 
some of the epic failures I have in retrospect, we probably didn't remove people from the task that were just a bad influence on the team uh, or the effect we were trying to achieve early enough. Uh, and if I could do some of those over again, uh, the, the goal is not to, to be tougher on people. I, I try to be consistent, if nothing else, with uh, both fairness and equity. Uh, but to take a more jaundiced eye as to are people the problem here? And if so, which of the people are the problem you know, to achieve a better effect uh, sooner? And then in the spirit, when I was a more junior leader, right, as an old sports player, uh, team, everything's about loyalty to the team, right? And I, I'm not sure I balance the effectiveness of the mission and the larger organization versus the loyalty and the camaraderie of the team. But I found out over time that the teams that are insulated from failure continue to fail. Mm. Unless you tell them, this is bad work. <laughs> you did not hit the mark. Okay. And if you try and sugarcoat it too much in terms of unity and morale, but you're not candid enough to let yourself to accept others telling you uh, that you failed, well, then you're setting the team up for more failures in the future. So in that regard, when you're trying new things, right, don't be risk adverse. Mention that briefly. If you're going to give your deputy more responsibility, give them more authority, that's a prudent risk. So don't, don't be risk adverse, uh, but be adverse to taking bad risk. Right? Think through it. Think through it with a group of people uh, before you make the choice. Those are a few thoughts on abandonment. Okay, so, and I mean, I'm just still kind of stunned because, I mean, I am all in with what you said. I think this is the biggest thing that leadership, and maybe it's because we're military people where it's like, hey, we got to look at stuff and say, is this a good fit or not? You get this in civilian sectors where it's, oh, it's this culture, and we need to unlock people in their best environment. But I was always, being prior military, like, I know, but they have to also meet the needs of the mission. And so that's why I really studied followership. So Paul, especially being in the military where you can't just let people go, you know, everybody's in unless they do something horrific and wind up, you know, cast out of the core or whatever. How would you do that process? Would you meet with them a certain amount of times and then realize, hey, this is just, this is, you know, I still go back in leadership and we're supposed to get the best out of people. But what do you do if somebody is not stepping into what the needs of the mission are? Yeah, there's verbal counseling at multiple levels, right? Usually the titular head of the organization last, mm -hmm. work it up. Ultimately, the leader is responsible. So if the verbal's not working, you know, it's right. an escalation model I have in mind. Yeah. In writing, okay. Now, at the same time, you could be doing other things with problem individuals in a team. Mm -hmm. You could move them, you keep them in the larger umbrella organization, but move them off this team. Mm -hmm. that may not be possible. Right. Then we could minimize their roles and responsibilities. Administratively, yeah. I can't remove the person. Right. And control what level of trust and work we give. Right. Okay. Others will see this happening. So you need to be candid with the others as well as to why this is happening. 
And more often than not, finally, when people were minimized, if all those things didn't work, and they were ostracized by their own peers, mm-hmm. right? That was a level of pressure and concern that mm-hmm. they had that brought them back on board. You know, some just never came that way. But more often than not, when they started feeling the pressure from their peer group Mm -hmm. is when they turned around. Right. And this is tough because a lot of people that are listening are solopreneurs or one or two. But Paul's principles are still solid. Paul, when you said you waited too long on some of these, is it that you just saw early inklings? Do you think people turn the corner quickly? I mean, I look at the book of Proverbs. And there's the wise people that accept rebuke. There's the fools that'll laugh, but then they come along. And then there's people that you know, leadership or not, it's just not going to work. So when you say it was too long, why do you think that was? Because I mean, I ask this on behalf of every leader, myself too, because we're get it done kind of people, especially people in the military. And so people look at me and say, why didn't you act sooner? You knew there wasn't this level of trust or performance. And I'm like, I don't know. So I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, by nature, I think I'm overly forgiving. I've benefited from mercy. (laughs) I love that. And professional and spiritual, you know, over the years. So I'm sensitive to it. Yes. For example, here's an epic fail. So we call him Sea Story, you know, they're wingmen, you know, and then we shipmates call them Sea Stories. This is after 9-11. I was assigned to an aircraft carrier strike group embarked on the Stennis, based in San Diego. Stennis wasn't in the central command area of responsibility on 9-11, but we were getting ready to go there that winter for what would have been a routine deployment. 9-11 occurs. We all got out to the ship quickly. We didn't know what was next. Instead of a four-month training cycle to get ready to deploy, we were given four weeks to get out there and support the other aircraft carriers that were on the line. So things were moving rather quickly. An evaluation team comes on board at the end of your training period. And like any group of evaluators, right, they've got their clipboard, they're building their PowerPoints, they make a presentation in front of a room of senior officers. And the intel evaluator, who I didn't know well, but didn't say anything particularly negative, negative to me during the process. The first graphic he puts up uh, and his words begin, significant problems noted, not ready for a combat deployment. This is a week or two away yes. from going to war yes. for our The country's already at war. Yes. I was stunned. The room was stunned. There was no coordination. No other evaluator laid that kind of lumber on the other participants. Maybe they didn't deserve it. The meeting breaks. Others continue. Everyone's walking around me at the end of the presentation in the conference room like I'm radioactive. <laughs> they, they want nothing to do with me because they don't want to be next to the anchor who's maybe getting fired here, right? Ah, you know, we do things different than Becker. He's not ready. We're ready, right? I was left with a couple of uh, admirals. I was a commander at the time. A couple of admirals, so one who I worked directly for and one who was the admiral of the whole evaluation team. And my immediate admiral, Jim Zortman uh, was his name. He put his arm around my shoulder and he said, Paul, 
I think you did fine. There were some things that need to be fixed, but I have every confidence you'll do that. And we deploy in one week with you as our intel officer. So I failed. There's no doubt about that, the exam. But my boss didn't make me feel like a failure. Mm-hmm. There's a different take on abandonment. He didn't abandon me. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that act of forgiveness, mm-hmm. more, of a, more of a kindness. How motivated was I to go work for this guy yeah. for the next eight months afloat, right? Yes. The other admiral later on would command U.S. Naval Forces in the Central Command. And when it came time a few years later for orders, uh, he asked that I join his staff as the intel officer. And he said, I remember how you handled that evaluation scenario back off of the San Diego coast, you know, in October of 2001. And having seen what you've done since then, I knew you could handle all that's happening here. So he didn't abandon me either. Mm -hmm. He forgave me. He showed some mercy. And how motivated was I to work hard for that person on that mission? Right. I love that. Well, but the other thing is, Paul, you had people that gave you the second opportunity. And I have had so many life. And I love that you said overly forgiven and benefited from mercy. And thank you. Because maybe that's why I'm so long suffering too, because I'm like, nobody was a bigger screw up than me. I mean, it took me seven years to get my undergrad. I mean, so I look back at this, but what I love about what you said, they gave you the opportunity, but you produced the outcome. And so that is the hope when we, when we give people feedback and say, hey, listen, you need to abandon this type of attitude or will problem. And I need you to step up your game and come back into the fold. And you did it. You didn't just accept their opportunity to rise and shine, but you delivered. You made them look like they made the right decision. And that's where that dual nature of leaders and followers, you can't have one without the other. Great followers need great leaders and great leaders need great followers. So we're in this together. Excellent. Okay, awesome. I love that. Okay, so lastly, we have vision. And my dad talked about the force price of leadership is vision. And what he referred to vision as seeing what needs to be done and doing it. I just love it because I'm just, I'm such an integrator and just, can we, I'm like a high D, can we just get this done? <laughs> Let's just get to work. So, you know, I'm sure I, I pulled that trait from him. Well, what does vision mean for you? I mean, we hear all these esoteric, I mean, some of our emerging leaders may be like, but I don't consider myself visionary. What does vision mean for you? How do you hone it? How do you craft it? How do you get it and let it drive you forward? Vision is understanding where you're going. There's a, a metaphor there, right? Yes. Where you're going. Back to the team concept. Two things teammates want to know from their leader. Do they care? Like, do you really care about me? Because if you don't, you're going to be an ineffective leader. You'll never garner the trust and loyalty of your teammates. So do you care? And do you know where we're going? Literally and physically, right? You know, where's the company's sales going? Where is this aircraft going? What is the purpose of raising these combined federal campaign funds this year, right? Why are we doing this? Simon Sinek, you know, talks about this, getting to why, right? So leaders' vision is the why we're doing this. So not only must they understand where the organization is going, right? They need to drive it there right? It doesn't happen on its own. These are not fire and forget weapons. 
It needs constant input. And, and how does one do it? Well, it's good to have credo, right? uh, a maxim, a commander philosophy, mm-hmm. a commander's intent. I thought about this long and hard, and I took good notes from leaders who I admired and did not, right? Combination of both over decades. And uh, when it came time for me uh, to develop my own command philosophy and commander's intent, I thought about what made a tremendous leader compared to an average leader. And I bend them into three categories that apply to vision, right? There's the teamwork, right? There's the tone, and then there's that fighting spirit of tenacity. And when you put them all together, you have something that's short, memorable, actionable. It lets everyone know the vision of how we're going to do things. You need to also incorporate into that what we're going to do. But back to the vision, here's why we're going to do it. Now, these things are easy to forget, and I was never a fan of someone who framed their commands vision statement, and they left it near every doorway in the office, and people walked by it and didn't really pay attention. Or those that insert snappy quotes at the bottom of their signature block, and this is my leadership philosophy. It doesn't work that way. It needs to be visible. It needs to be constantly reinforced. It needs to be incentivized and it needs to be repeated all the time. It's a little bit kitschy, Tracy, but I turned mine into something I called the gold standard, right? And I put it on a piece of gold paper and I made it into a trifold. And I had five or six of these different in every command that I went to since about the time when I was a commander. This one happened to be from the Joint Intelligence Center Central Command. So that was the large uh, command I talked about. So that's uh, just uh, an image of our logo, right? Our command logo, but we were directly subordinate to the central command. Mm-hmm. And on the back fold, in case someone left it upside down, well, that's our mission right there. That's the why we do what we do. Rapidly provide all source operationally relevant intelligence to CENTCOM warfighters and decision makers. We will provide the knowledge to defeat any enemy. That's why we do what we do. Now, inside there are other panels, I won't read the whole thing, but we get to the what and the how, and that's how we execute our vision. That's the teamwork tone tenacity, right? Teamwork, you know, is about developing trust and loyalty amongst partners. Um, The reason, my experience, teams fall apart or they're ineffective, there's a lack of trust and loyalty. Now, there's ways to improve that, and a leader needs to be mindful of that. And that's what teamwork is about. Think about how many times if you trust someone, even if you disagree with them, today's political environment. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people in the military or former military that I trust, and I have a, a very different political philosophy. But I trust them, and because of that, right? We continue our friendship and our loyalty to each other. Right. And in a fighting organization or in a company that's fighting for performance and profit, Mm -hmm. that's important, you know, that cohesive bond, right? The tone is that cascade of positive effects 
you know, and outlooks. And the goal is not to be the Pollyannish Ned Flanders, right, from The Simpsons, right? You know, not that kind of optimism, right. but pragmatic, positive outcome to be triumphant along the way. And back to things we talked about in the other quadrants, when you ask someone how they're doing, you need to mean it, right? That's part of tone. Admiral Zortman, you know, telling me that you failed, but you're not a failure, right? That's part of tone. And then there's tenacity. There are other synonyms, perseverance. Angela Duckworth wrote a great book a few years ago called Grit. I love that word. Same concept, but tenacity is not endurance. We all have, if you've ever driven in a car around Los Angeles or New York or DC, that's endurance, right? Just commuting to work. Tenacity is persevering, but with a purpose. It's understanding what the end game looks like and working your way backwards to achieve it. And you need to go through, over, around, underneath, all legally, morally, and ethically. That's the way to do it. Uh, The most tenacious people in the military I ever worked with were those junior to me. I was sure I couldn't compete with them, you know, later in my career. How did they get so tenacious? And I think of Master Chief Petty Officer Todd Schroeder or Colonel Annette Teresi. And these are people who I'm dear friends with now. We're all out of uniform. But at the time, I drew inspiration and energy from their tenacity, trying to get things done when we were stationed together in Afghanistan in some pretty trying circumstances for a year and a half in 2009, 2010. I love that. And I love that you brought up the trust. And one of my favorite quotes is by George McDonald. And it says, he said, to be trusted is a higher compliment than being loved. I don't have to like you, but if I trust you, but you know what I'm saying? Then that's the most important thing. Because if I don't trust you, there's no way I'm going to like you anyways, because trust is, it's a big deal. And organizations now they're finding, you know, collaboration, yes, unity, all that stuff. But without trust, everything splits apart. So, I mean, I just, you can't have a team if you don't trust each other. And Trust is the glue that holds the, call it a triangle, teamwork, tenacity, right? It's alliterative, it's memorable, it's actionable, things we should be doing. But you need all three. Right. Without one of the legs, you just have two sticks and the figure collapses. What holds the joints together is trust. Yes. So beautiful. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your insights on vision, Paul. And as we're circling back, we covered loneliness, weariness, abandonment, and vision. And I've got like five pages of notes. So thank you. I can't wait to go back again. Anything else that you have not unpacked in your, in your leadership that you would like to share? I mean, we talked about the price of leadership, but anything else while our listeners have the, uh, the benefit of listening to your wisdom? Anything else you would like to share with the group? A final note on vision. Leaders should look at any object through a different lens as much as possible, let me be more specific. Yes, please. Here's a computer, right? I've got a a keyboard in front of me. I'm I'm looking at like my MacBook Air talking to you right now. Mm -hmm. But computers aren't in the computing business as much as they are nowadays in the communications business. So think about that leaders. Any asset, any human, or physical asset that you may have as part of your team, as part of your organization. Think about what dual uses and innovative uses 
you can use Love it. to either expand someone's professional horizons or use a tool in a different way, right? Reuse those space rockets, says, you know, SpaceX, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, let's try a different type of battery, you know, says Mr. Tesla, right? Innovation, I think, goes into vision. And back to the triangle, right? Not every leader is the perfect balance of teamwork, tone, tenacity, right? They're not all equilateral triangles. I think by all accounts, someone with a great vision was Steve Jobs. But by the same all accounts, he wasn't a fun person to work with. Right? Right. I've, read, I've read his bio. I've seen his movie. Or a tough boss. Yeah. Uh, but indisputable vision about mm-hmm. something. So that may have been an isosceles triangle, that teamwork tone tenacity. So be flexible that way. It's, it's not always going to be one side equals all. Love it. Love it. Well, Paul, how can our listeners reach out to you, learn more about you, connect with you? I'm sure they'd love to have you in their tribe of connections and also talk about your website and what you're doing now. With pleasure. My website's uh, thebeckert3group.com. And I'm on Twitter at beckert3group.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram as well. We provide organizational development expertise and leadership coaching and instruction to individuals and organizations in the private sector. In uniform, our metric of success were how ready were we to fight, right? Mm. Were we combat ready now? Now, it's tough to put a dollar figure on that. Military tries, but it's not the same as dollars and cents. Mm -hmm. So what I do as a, a leadership coach and mentor and expert working with private corporations is to make that transition from teamwork tone tenacity to performance, productivity, and profit. And I've worked with Fortune 500 companies down through two-person startups uh, to help uh, get them moving. I continue to contribute to national security through boards of advisors with companies that work with the Department of Defense and the Mm -hmm. intelligence community. And most happily this year, I began teaching leadership at the U.S. Naval Academy right here in Maryland. I'm teaching the class of 2023. Not all of them. It's a big class, but two sections of ethics and moral reasoning. Oh my gosh, that's incredible because I know some of our listeners out there may have some kids or grandkids going to the Naval Academy. So that's phenomenal, Paul. In an active social media footprint, we've been kind enough to comment on, on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. Facebook. I try and match world events or memorable personalities or their birthdays to the core elements of teamwork, tone, tenacity. Nice. I love that. Well, thanks. And for our listeners out there, be sure and connect with Paul and link up with him. Check out his website if you're an organization. And Paul, I just love that you're taking what you learn from the military experience and bringing it into the marketplace because there's so many beautiful relevance that we can use in productivity and profits. And it's not just about going to war because everybody knows running a business, entrepreneurship can be a lot like war on a lot of different days. So thank you for that. And Paul, we just are so thankful for you being here. And to our listeners out there, please be sure. And if you like what you heard, hit the subscribe button. Do us the honor of a rating wherever you listen to us. We're across all the different platforms and share with other people that want to hear what it takes to pay the price of leadership. Again, retired Rear Admiral Becker, 
Thank you for your wisdom, Paul. Thanks so much. And to our tremendous leaders out there, have a tremendous day. Thank you for listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Find out more about Dr. Jones at www.tremendousleadership.com. If you've been ignited by something you heard in this episode, let us know by leaving a review for Tremendous Leadership wherever you listen to podcasts or by sending us a message through www.tremendousleadership.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.